longer the building. So when you think of a stonemasonry building, how far apart are the bricks? You know, normally when you're making something, you want the bricks somewhat close together so there could be strength. If the bricks are too far apart, then your joints are just filled with a bunch of mortar and it's a lot weaker. You know, you think about when you're doing brick, when you're doing stone work, uh, if it's a normal brick, about a finger width apart is the, the distance that you want. Depending on the size, depending on the weight and all of those types of things, it could get a little bit wider, but you have strength. And then you relate that to people. You know, with people, if we're too far apart from each other, for whatever reason, the building is not going to be strong. But if we're coming together, if we're being edified in the word, if we're building each other up, there is definite strength. So today we're going to be reading through Romans 15, and we'll back up into 14 a little bit for some context. But we're going to start with Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. And Paul says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, as we continue in this little series, I pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom. Open up our hearts and minds to your truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we read that passage, hopefully you can, with your eye of detail and being able to pay attention and remember everything that we've talked about in the last couple weeks, you can see some similarities to these passages. You know, you can see the phrasing of how we are to look to others over ourselves in the first couple of verses. You see how Christ is laid out as an example in, the, in verses 3 through 5. And then you can see this added feature in this passage where Paul is putting in this prayer about hope. So that's just kind of a brief overview uh, of the layout of these passages. As we dive deeper, I want to look at this first verse for a little while. We who are strong have an obligation or we ought to bear with the failings, the weaknesses of those who are not able, those who are not strong. So to bear with means to lift up, to carry, to sustain, to support. Um, it also has this sense of suffering or patient endurance. It's the same term, it's the same use as when the Bible says Jesus bears the cross. And from this verse, we want to see this connection to the things that we've already learned in the previous two passages, where there's an understanding that the Christian life is to be engaged in community, and it needs to involve concern for the edifying of other believers, of both the individual and of the body. You know, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians 10, when we were looking at our freedoms and our liberties, where we needed to look to the other's needs over our own. 
You know, we need to treat that as a necessity when it comes to pleasing others over ourselves. So we have this obligation to bear with one another as we look at their needs. And of course, when we look at this first verse a little bit deeper, you can ask that fun question. Who are the strong and who are the weak? Who's the alpha? Who's the beta? Right? Who would be strong to you in this room? Who would be weak? You know, isn't that kind of human nature? When we enter a room, we kind of size people up a little bit. Maybe we look for the exits. Maybe we understand the situations around us. It's kind of ingrained in how we walk through life. Now, I would say that everybody definitely has their areas of strength and weaknesses. Of course, my weakness is being too strong. I've claimed that one, so you guys can't call that one either, so that's mine. But, you know, we've been talking about spectrums quite a bit, different ways to, to view different things. Um, and there could be a lot of division around those spectrums. I would venture to say that both sides of a spectrum would probably say that, well, I'm strong and the other side is weak. You know, so we make it this strong and weak understanding about being right or being wrong. And what happens is the strong ones want to stick together and not really bear with the weak. So we find a lot of people who believe the exact same way, worshiping the exact same things. Until you find weaknesses within that little body and you divide again. Tori, you're dividing to the point of minutia. And then we get lost in the weeds, not really having to worry about this verse. Because if you don't have anybody weak around you, then you don't have to do it. Unless, of course, you're looking in the mirror. And then you have that internal struggle going on. You see, we have to understand the we who are strong does not automatically mean us. Or we can't place people that we disagree with as those being weak. But oftentimes that is how we treat it. Through this verse, we have to recognize the humility factor from Philippians that we talked about last week to be able to rightly discern between maturity and disagreements. In general, the meaning here is that the weak need knowledge and the strong need love. As one commentator put it, he said, Paul was not saying the strong must determine to put up with the weak. He meant those of us who are strong must accept as our own burden the tender scruples of the weak. Now, scruples are doubts, they're hesitations, they're questions that people might have, questions about living out faith. You know, and if somebody doesn't feel safe to be able to ask questions or safe if they can have disagreements, then they leave. They don't stick around. Humility comes into play in a deep way because how often are we going to say that we're the weaker one? How often are we going to step up and say, I have questions or I don't understand something? Instead, we just go with the flow and act like we fit in not really going deeper in our faith because we're too afraid to ask the questions or we don't feel that we can ask the questions. You know, studying this topic, 
I was reminded of Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. And there was two things that I got out of that book. One of them that I just loved was his discussion on EGRs. I just absolutely loved EGRs. Because he says EGRs, every group has one. If you don't know, what it, if, if you don't know who the EGR is, then it's you. And maybe it's been you know, 20 years since you've read that book. Maybe you've never read that book. An EGR is somebody where he defines as extra grace required. And it was hilarious to me because as I was reading this, I was a young Christian. And I thought it was so funny and things like that. I'm looking around the room. I'm like, okay, who's the EGR? Who's the Wait a minute. It was me. And, you know, you go through those patterns of life, of weaknesses, to where, yeah, you might need a little bit of extra grace to be dealt with here and there. Or you might have to use some extra grace. You think parents and kids, how many times can they ask the same question over and over and over again? Extra grace can be required. But oftentimes, you know, we can respond in frustration or anger or um, not the humble way that we should. But you know, when we think about all of these spectrums that we've been talking about, one of the first hurdles, I think, is being able to identify those areas of strength and weaknesses that we might all have, those areas that we need to be more upfront about. You know, and some of these areas that Paul is talking about, let's look at some of this context. So let's go back up into chapter 14. And I want to look at some of these scenarios that Paul gives us here. Starting in verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So right away we see this context again, how it's talking about food, and it's talking about not being quarrelsome. Again, even in our homes, we think about, man, if the kids could just understand this, my life would be a lot easier. Why do you got to keep fighting with each other? But I think that we need to, to train and teach. Um, we need to be stronger as parents to teach them how to discuss something rather than just breaking down in a shouting match. And on a side note, I'm not sure if there's a better verse in the Bible about being against being a vegetarian than this verse right here, how you're weak if you just eat vegetables. And I joke because I'm a meat eater. But I think the next two verses really, really puts this into context of how we need to, to think about one another. Verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another it is before his own master that he stands or falls and will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand I think if we can commit these two verses to heart to memorize them we'd be able to overlook a lot of disagreements within the body as a church as a whole to understand that God is the judge. And we see this determination from Paul about how God will judge both people and how or what they are eating, how it's a matter of heart. And in this next section, he's gonna give different areas to different examples that's going on in the church. But we wanna understand that these things are matters of conscience and conviction. Conviction is the thought that whatever we do 
is to be done with enthusiasm because we are persuaded and convinced in our minds that that's what God wants for us. Conscience is the internal or the self-knowledge and judgment of right and wrong, so it deals with morals. And our conduct should be such that we're not looking back on what we do with qualms of conscience and we're not betraying our convictions, but that there's still this sense of oneness in Christ, not this my way or the highway type of mentality. Now, obviously, both areas need to be backed up with Scripture where you can. But sometimes there's arguments that are made from silence, where it's not always as clear as you would want it to be based on your specific situations in the Bible. So you, you go back up a level to different principles. You know, the important thing is when a matter is important to you, do the work, study. Find out what the Bible says about those topics. I learned in seminary that you want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. You know, we want to, in our study, we want to be diligent to go deeper in our faith, not letting somebody else dictate what we believe. You know, I, I tell the youth group kids this all the time. Don't take it, for, don't take it just because I say something. Know why I say something. Do the work. Do the study. Don't just take my word for it or your famous author's word for it or a systematics word for it. People have done the work for years to study. When you think about preparation for a sermon, I put hours of time in reading. I spend hours in time of prayer over a message. You know, I, I put that work in to present to you. And if you're just coming to consume you're only getting a surface level understanding of something. You know, so when we think about, you know, pastors, books, podcasts, they can be helpful. They can help guide us in the right direction, but we have to do the work. You know, we, I don't want you to be, to be lazy in, in your study of the word, but loud in your voice of what's right and wrong. Because what happens is you just parrot what you hear but you don't have any foundation or substance underneath. Let's say some, you have this stance and this is the way it is. Why? Because it is. Because is not a good answer. Because people have genuine questions. Some of the best times I've ever grown is through people asking me questions about struggles that they have in their faith. It's like, you know, I've never thought of it that way. Let me do some researching it back to you. It's an opportunity for both of you to grow. You know, when we just parrot things, our voice has no power behind it. But if we do the study and we're diligent, we can go back to Scripture and give the people the hope for the answers that we have. Let's continue reading here in chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So this would be like feast days and festivals, holy days types of things. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For the, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of God or of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Notice how it's never decide. It's an action that we can take to quench the spirit in another person's life, to put that obstacle in front. Verse 14, I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Really pay attention to that verse. I mean, do we view other Christians that way? By what our actions do, are we destroying, are we quenching the spirit, are we crushing somebody else by what we do? Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So in that verse there, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That would be the minors. Not the minors drinking, but just minor issues. <laughs> Look at the majors. Righteousness, joy, peace. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your, your brother to stumble. The faith you have, sorry, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So, you know, I think as I'm reading through this, there's a lot of strong words in this section. There's times where I just want to take my headset off and drop it because Paul lays things out so beautifully here. You know, he, he hits them hard with some stuff. And we want to see some of these connections to what we've read in 1 Corinthians 10. Again, you know, not actively causing our brothers and sisters to stumble in the freedoms or the liberties that we may have, while at the same time promoting growth in, in your brothers and sisters in different ways who may be weaker in some of those areas. Again, um, not saying it's a license to sin or what you're saying your freedoms may be if they're sinful for you to continue in those. But you know, you're going for righteousness, you're going for holiness, you're going for joy and peace. You know, and we need to have these discussions because what happens in reality? You know, we have the division that we talked about earlier and then we have, you know, weaker brothers or sisters who at times border on legalism, trying to control your faith or the faith of others. Basically, when that happens, you no longer want to hang out with that person. 
You don't want to be around that person. So there's no edification. There's no building up that happens. There's just division. So as I said before, with these three passages, it comes back to community. It comes back to this fellowship, this koinonia, this bond that we have. How well do we know each other to know, to be able to know what causes a brother or sister to stumble? Do we know the struggles that they have? Because we have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those who are not able to bear certain things. Do we know them well enough to where we're building them up? To please them. To make them feel encouraged and be encouraged in Christ. Again, as I said, this is an area that I need to improve in my life. I need to make, uh, make sure that I'm being encouraging in different ways. Short story to help illustrate this for us. There's a group of frogs traveling through the woods. Two of them fell into a deep pit. All of the other frogs were gathered around the pit, and when they saw how deep the pit was, they told the two frogs that they were as good as dead. The two frogs ignored the comments and tried to jump out of the pit with all of their might. The other frogs kept telling them to stop, that they were as good as dead. Finally, one of the frogs took heed of what the other frogs were saying and gave up. He fell down and he died. The other frog continued to jump as hard as he could. Once again, the, cr the crowd of frogs up top were yelling at him, telling him to stop the pain and just die. Think of Job, curse God and die. But the frog jumped even harder until finally he made it out. See, that frog was deaf. He was unable to hear the pleas of the other frogs, and he thought they were encouraging him the entire time. See, there is power of life and death in the tongue. An encouraging word to somebody who's down can lift them up and help, their, help make their day. But a destructive word spoken to somebody who is down could be what it takes to kill them, to quench their spirit, to crush their soul. So we need to be careful of what we say and how we say it, speaking life to those who cross our paths. It can be hard sometimes to understand how an encouraging word can do all of that, but it can go a long way. And you know, in that illustration, you can probably picture, picture yourself as different frogs at different points in your life. You could be the one who lays down and gives up, you could be the ones that are up top shouting negativity, or you can be the one who doesn't give up. How about the hidden frog and how the one that survived viewed the other frogs as encouragers? Could we be like that? And where does that encouragement come from? Well, let's look back in our main passage in 15 at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our encouragement needs to come from the scriptures. That's what it needs to be based in. And then you look above in verse 3, and we see again how Jesus is our example in all things. Uh, this is quoted from Psalm 69.9. You know, and you look through Jesus' life and you got to think about how many times did he go through his life 
and he experiences these things, he's like, okay, this is fulfilling this verse. Okay, this is fulfilling this verse. You know, we have that, that intro time when he's reading through the book of Isaiah and he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled. But you gotta be thinking, how many times was he reproached? How many times was he mocked, scorned, cursed, beaten? His authority was challenged. The crucifixion that he faced. All of these things happen to fulfill the scriptures. Was it pleasing to go through? No. You go back up to verse two. You know, Jesus, it says, did not please himself. You look at verse two and it says how we are to please our neighbors. Again, it's not the people pleaser mentality of just doing whatever we will make them happy simply because we want to please them. But rather the goal for this behavior is for the other person's welfare and spiritual edification. We're not to please others for the sake of pleasing others, but to please God by doing his will. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's his desire, that's his hope. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. You know, and we can all play a role in that. Yes, it is the Spirit who sanctifies. But as we guide, as we teach, as we encourage one another with Scripture, that Scripture is used by the Spirit if we have hearts and ears open to grow, to process things, to understand. So as iron sharpens iron, we help each other through that encouragement. This encouragement helps to continue to hope in the Lord. You know, Christ and his sacrifice shows that he was pleasing the Father first and foremost by doing his will. Not necessarily trying to please people. You know, you look at the Pharisees, he definitely wasn't pleasing the Pharisees. But Jesus would look to the scriptures and he would find hope and comfort in them. You look to all the people in the Bible, they are going through hard times. They are going through trials. They are going through challenges. And what they find hope is, in is the word of God, his promises. You look at all the people in the Old Testament who hold on to the fact that God said he is going to send a Messiah. He's going to send the Christ, the anointed one. And they hold on to that and it gives them hope. It gives them encouragement. Faith in the word of God and his promises. You know, at times we want the answers now. We want a quick, thi- a quick fix But scripture teaches us patient endurance. To rely on him through those challenges. To continue to persevere and put our hope and trust in what he has said. And we each play a part in that endurance as we're sharing the word of God with one another to bring hope in those challenging times. But again, what are those challenging times that your neighbor is going through? How well do you know your neighbors? Your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we know the hardships that they face? It goes back to that fellowship and that bond. And within this bond, there has to be this transference to God. You know, because sometimes there could be a dependency that develops where maybe, maybe you're depending on this Christian friend that always helps you out because they seem to always have the answers. But the answers they give are the scriptures. And the point that we have to make sure that we eventually get to, might not be right away, is that God is the center. 
Christ is the center. He is the one that we point to, that we look to. You don't look to me as the pastor to have all of the answers. I can help and I can guide. But when you put your faith in a person, what happens when that person goes away? What happens when that person dies? Your world's crushed. You don't know where to turn. That's why our hope can only be placed in the living God, in Christ. And that's what we need to understand. You know, through all of this patient endurance, we want to look at Paul's prayer here, beginning kind of in verse 5. And we see some of this transference. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ. To live in harmony. It's a, it's a sweetness that's about that. Where you are found in agreement in Jesus. So it's not like we're in agreement to this theology or to this doctrine or to this um, building. But you're in agreement to Jesus. Again, we can put things up on a pedestal. We talked about that last week. We need to understand how we do that. And we need to make sure that Jesus is firmly planted there. Um, you know, when we look to him as the center, he is the truth. And that's comforting to us. That brings us encouragement. That brings us hope in an age where truth is becoming more and more relative or subjective. Um, we want to understand how there's harmony with each other through understanding of and our faith and our hope and our trust in him. And we can be encouraged by that. Let's continue reading in this section, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So you see this focus on Gentiles in this section. Again, it's another issue that, that Paul is dealing with in the church to where Jews and Gentiles still had this division. They still had this separation that Paul is trying to, um, he is trying to fix within the, this young church. And he is encouraging them with these words. But focusing on verse 13, kind of closing this section off with this prayer. Now this prayer, it's written in the subjunctive. So there's a possibility, like may this happen. Um, you know, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace and believing, so that by the power of the Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, encouragement is temporary. We need to be encouraged all the time because the enemy is around us. The enemy is trying to knock us down to get us to falter in our hope and our trust, trying to distract us, to pull our, our eyes away from Jesus, to focus on other things. And we could be easily swayed to and fro based on what's going on around us and the challenges that we face. 
So we need encouragement from each other with the scriptures in order to run the race that's set before us with patient endurance, to grasp on the hope that is offered by Christ. I want to close with one more illustration, a little story for us. The marathon, as the race, is not always the most exciting thing to watch. But it is a severe test of endurance of your body, of your determination to succeed, to, to train for many months ahead of time, to try to make it those 26-plus miles across the finish line. And there was a very famous interview done after the Olympic Games in 1968 about the marathon race. It was a race where the winner eventually came across the finish line. Um, many other runners would follow behind. Eventually the race was over, all except for one person, a single lone runner still out on the course. Other track and field events were going on through that time and an hour passed, two hours passed, and eventually this, this person comes hobbling back into the stadium. And the crowd kind of figures out what's going on and how this person is fitting into the picture that's before them. His pace is slow, his steps are wobbly, his knee is bloody and bandaged because he had this fall early in the race. But he continued on through the pain. He continued on through everything, making that final lap around the track. The, the crowd got behind him and they cheered. They praised his determination. And after the race, the, one, the runner was asked why he continued, even though he lost the race by several hours. Why wouldn't you take care of yourself and your knee if you were that damaged, if you were that injured? And his answer was simple. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. Paul said that the crown of life awaits each of us who finishes the race. But finishing is much harder than starting. Finishing means running day in and day out, training ourselves, being in the word of God, staying focused on our goal, self-denial, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. God has not put you here to start. He has put you here to finish. So keep running the good race. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Christ and know that there's going to be stronger runners and there's going to be weaker runners. Encourage both. Encourage them in the hope that we have in Christ to finish and cross the finish line because it's God who gives us the strength. You might feel like you can't go on, like you have too many gray hairs, or you're frustrated with your marriage, your kids, your jobs, life as a whole. Yes, life is difficult. We don't want to diminish that. But let's major on the majors for a moment. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for their sins. You know, do we consider the sufferings of, of this time as not being worth comparison to the glory that will be re revealed to us in that day? You have limited time on this earth to serve the one who has saved you.
May you be filled with righteousness, joy, and peace because we believe in the living God who gives us hope. Do not be consumed with the small things. Yes, they are important and they need action. But in your action, we need to be humble. We need to communicate well the truths of the Lord and display his grace in our conversations in order to please him, putting others' needs over our own because it's not about you. It's all about God's glory in heaven. So let's focus on how we can encourage one another more into the hope that we have, patiently enduring in our faith, living for him, running the race to the finish line. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that you have given us, the hope to continue each day to know you more, to serve you, to love you. Father, I think about my brothers and sisters in this room, the, tar- the hardships, the trials that we go through at times, how that can be, how that can just take our focus away from you. Father, I pray that in our encouragement, that we find that encouragement and hope in your word and that we're able to share that with each other. Lord, so many times we may not know exactly what's going on in others' lives, but if you are on our lips, we can bring them hope. So I pray for us to do the diligent work, to study hard, to go deeper in our faith, so that we can be prepared and ready to give an answer for the hope that is found in us in Christ. Lord, you are the center of our faith. May we never put anything other than you in that place. Lord, you are the Lord of our life. May we live that way. May we praise you as our Lord and Savior all the days that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you please stand for our last song?